We ended last week's episode with talk of panic and worry about the worsening Cuba crisis. In the film, we see Kevin Costner stopping by a church to offer his, perhaps, last confession. And in real life, we looked at some newspaper articles from the time, which showed there was a degree of panic buying in America at this time, but little actual panic. No one was screaming in the streets, cars weren't clogging up the motorways trying to flee the cities. Makes sense to me, if there was a real prospect of nuclear war, then what's the point of running? I imagine my response would be sadness and resignation rather than panic. Panic suggests action, even if it's an irrational action, like stuffing your cupboards full of tinned sweet corn and tuna, or packing the car up and heading across the country to your brother Jack's in Lincolnshire, where there's only a row of houses and a pub. They're not going to bomb that, are they? No, I think I'd be stricken with apathy and gloom and total resignation, much like every other day. So let's dive into part two of our look at 13 Days. So we're at the height of the Cuba crisis, the worst period of tension. Kennedy has erected a quarantine around Cuba, and remember he took care not to call it a blockade, as that is a military tactic used in war. And the whole point of this move is to avoid war, so they very carefully use the word quarantine, a word associated with health and safety and precaution. So the quarantine is up and the Soviet ships already on their way to the Caribbean are still charging through the waters towards Cuba. Will they stop? Will they heed the quarantine? Or will they push on through, forcing an American response? There are cheers and sighs of relief in the White House when word comes through that the ships are stopping. Hey, some of them are even turning around and heading back home. And amidst all the cheering and backslapping, our JFK, played by the excellent Bruce Greenwood, just looks across the room at his brother and at Big Kev. He's too dignified for cheering, but also he's maybe too sharp and intelligent to relax and to loosen his tie and let his guard down. He knows that we can't relax, not just yet. Remember, of course, JFK had actually fought in a war. He was in the Navy during World War II. And although war is, of course, 
doesn't even need to be said, hideous and dreadful. At least it turned out a few presidents and Soviet leaders who'd lived through it, fought through it, and so knew exactly what they were dealing with when the prospect of another one came near. We in the West might have feared the grey old men who were in charge of the Soviet Union, but when you look back to, say, the Abel Archer scare of 1983, my God, those men dreaded war because they knew what it was like. They would have fought to defend their country, of course, as they did in 1941, but they didn't want to do that. They didn't want it. And don't our leaders of today often seem like puny little children when you compare them to people who'd gone through the hell of the 1940s? But what's the answer then if that's the only way to get leaders who are careful to avoid war? Is the only answer to have a world war every now and then to pep everyone up, straighten everyone out? Hardly. The only answer would be to try and elect intelligent and thoughtful men and women who know their history books. But we can be glad, of course, that in Kennedy and Khrushchev we had two leaders with direct experience of the horror of war. And of course, each had around them staff and advisors with the same knowledge, for whom this wasn't a game or a chance to show off. It seemed here that they were men who were brave enough to say we don't want war. I get the sense with some politicians that they'd they'd see that stance these days as a weakness. But if I can quote Morrissey, the great Morrissey, it takes strength to be gentle and kind. So perhaps you could say in this context, it takes courage to say you don't want to fight. But anyway, back to the film. As was foreshadowed, of course, by Bruce Greenwood refusing to jump up and down and celebrate, some ships are continuing towards the quarantine. Yes, most of them have stopped, or even turned about, but six of them remained on course. Six of them were still heading towards the quarantine. But cool heads prevail. These ships are still ages away from the line, and they might not even be carrying missiles or military hardware. So let's stay calm and let them continue on their way. It's pointed out in the film that we'd look pretty bad shooting up a container full of baby food. And indeed, um, Robert Kennedy mentions that, the prospect of one of the ships containing baby food, in his memoir, which is also called 13 Days, but um, upon which this film is not based. They share the same title, but that's all. I believe there was an earlier film about Cuba called The Missiles of October, and that is based on Robert Kennedy's book. But yes, in his book, he says that it's pointed out we have to be careful. We could stop one of these ships. We could climb aboard. We could demand that we search it. And when we crack open all the containers, all we find is baby food. And yes, perhaps it wouldn't have been beyond the Soviets to have <laughs> sent a few ships full of baby food and teddy bears to the Cubans in an act of communist friendship. Perhaps hoping desperately hoping that the Americans, all gung-ho, would board the ship, acting the tough guy, only to find it was full of teddies. And so, yet again, we see 
a stepping back from the brink. Here was another chance for it all to have gone horribly wrong. Another path which, had JFK gone down it, could have led to shooting and then to war and then to nuclear war. At this stage in the crisis, America moves its Air Force to DEFCON 2. We talked in last week's episode about XCOM, Kennedy's group of advisors, and that intimidating sounding name simply stood for Executive Committee. Quite boring, actually. XCOM sounds far more exciting. DEFCON stands for Defence Readiness Condition. You can see why they shorten things into these nicknames. They sound far more forbidding. So DEFCON, we went to DEFCON 2, or at least the American Air Force, not the entire American military. They were moved to DEFCON 2. There are five stages of DEFCON. DEFCON 5, the highest, or lowest, if you think about it that way, is uh, peacetime, when everything's cool and normal. And the higher you get, the closer you are to war. DEFCON 1 is war, or as damn close to war as you can be. America has never ever gone to DEFCON 1, and it has only gone to DEFCON 2 twice in its history. At this point, with the Air Force going to DEFCON 2 during Cuba, and in the First Gulf War. So we see how rare this status is and how serious the situation was. Moving to DEFCON 2 means you are one step away from war. It meant that America's B-52 bombers were on alert, as were the tankers who might be called upon to refuel them in midair. But there's another purpose, of course, in changing to DEFCON 2. It's not simply the the practical measures of getting some of your planes up in the air on airborne alert, dispersing your forces, etc. It's not just that. It is also, of course, sending a message, a very frightening, serious message to your enemy. The Soviets would, of course, see that the Americans had gone to DEFCON 2 and they would realise, hopefully, that... They were serious about moving this forward to war, if forced to. So DEFCON is not just about the physical preparations for war and the manoeuvres, it's about sending a message to your enemy. In the film, of course, we see that SAC, the Strategic Air Command, the guys in charge of the bombers, have chosen to move up to DEFCON 2 without telling Kennedy. And uh, this can happen. Uh, The military doesn't move up and down the DEFCON ladder En masse, you can move, as happened here, the Air Force up or down, keeping the Navy or the Army at a certain level. And there can be differences in the DEFCON system across the globe. So so America's forces in Europe, for example, could stay at a certain level, whereas their forces in the Pacific can move up or down. So there's a lot of flexibility in the DEFCON system, whether you climb up or down the ladder and which elements of your armed forces move up or down. And here we see that the Air Force guys have gone up to DEFCON 2, which angers Kennedy because he is trying to send messages to the Soviets. Obviously, there are literal messages going back and forth, but there are other ways, of course, of communicating, and the DEFCON system and a change in DEFCON status is one of them. 
Kennedy had carefully planned out how and when we move up and down the DEFCON ladder. And here are his Air Force guys going in all macho, all bravado as usual, and changing the status, upsetting the delicate language that Kennedy is trying to use to communicate with Khrushchev. We see this same situation in a, another scene, this time involving the Navy. The Navy, of course, are operating the blockade, or sorry, the quarantine, and Kennedy's advisor is in the room with them, watching what they do. Of course, not a Navy guy himself. So he's uh, watching, and he watches in horror as the Admiral authorises his guys to shoot at the Soviet ships. And he's, the advisor runs in and says, no, 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 the, the President has said no shooting, no shooting, cease your fire, stop, stop, stop. And the very snooty Admiral looks down his nose at him and says, they're blanks, they're just sent to send a message. And Kennedy's advisor says, well, what if they don't know that? I didn't know that. I just saw and heard shooting. What if they don't know that either? What if they make the same mistake I just did? So we see the Navy going in with force, whereas the the political guys are trying to do things more carefully. They're trying to speak to the, to the Soviets through various types of language. And th- this is a great line in, in the film, the advisor says to the to the admiral, he points to a map of the blockade and where all the ships are positioned, and he points to the huge map and he says, this is not a blockade! Because the, the Navy guy is saying, oh, son, we've been running blockades since you were a toddler or something. And he says, but this is not a blockade! This is language! And that is so true. They are trying to communicate with the Soviets. There are so many different levels of communication. One is the the literal exchange of messages. The other is, of course, um, speeches made by politicians which are thrown out to the media. And, of course, they have to be delivered in a certain tone. They have to use certain words. They have to strike a certain note. But behind all those levels is another way of speaking. And one of them is this delicate blockade. The blockade is language because it's a way of saying to Khrushchev, Here is a way out. You've got yourself into a bit of a knot here. There is a way out of this for both of us where we don't need to lose face. I don't want to bomb you because it might end up in nuclear war. You don't want to bomb me for the same reason. But neither of us can back down. There are careful, subtle ways of doing things. And the blockade, as language, is saying, here is a way out. And you don't stamp all over that language and rip it up by firing at the ships. This is not a blockade, this is language. So the Cuba crisis, of course, was about language, about carefully communicating your intentions without tripping into war. And we also see that played out in the excellent United Nations session. This is one of the best bits of the film. Uh, Adlai Stevenson, the US ambassador to the UN, he's told to go into the UN chamber and confront the Soviet ambassador about the missiles on Cuba. By this point, Adlai Stevenson is in his 60s and some of them fear that he doesn't have the necessary bite any longer. In fact, Stevenson died just three years after the Cuba crisis. So in the film, Kevin Costner rings him and 
gives him a bit of a pep talk. Go in there, Adlang, give them hell. But uh, some of the others, they have their doubts, and in the White House, they all gather around the old black and white TV set to watch the UN session. And they don't have much hope for old Adlai as he goes in there. But Kevin Costner, he's watching intently. He's got faith in the guy. Come on, come on, Adlai. Stick it to them. And yep, he does not let them down. Adlai Stevenson confronts the surly Soviet ambassador and famously fires questions at him. And as his opposite number hesitates, uh, looks uncomfortable... Stevenson famously shouts, don't wait for the translation. He wants the answer now. He goes in there and he indeed gives them hell. And then in the awkward confusion, Adlai Stevenson brings out his winning card. He has big, fat, blown up photos of the missile sites on Cuba. <laughs> no point denying it any longer, Soviets, is there? Here's a clip from the, from the real UN session. And while you were asking, while we're asking questions, let me ask you why your government, your foreign minister, deliberately, cynically deceived us about the nuclear buildup in Cuba. And finally, the other day, Mr. Zorin, I remind you that you didn't deny the existence of these weapons. Instead, we heard that they had suddenly become defensive weapons. But today, again, if I heard you correctly, you now say they don't exist, or that we haven't proved they exist. With another fine flood of rhetorical scorn. All right, sir, let me ask you one simple question. Do you, Ambassador Zorin, deny that the USSR has placed and is placing medium and intermediate range missiles and sites in Cuba? Yes or no? Don't wait for the translation, yes or no. Я не нахожусь в американском суде, и поэтому не хочу отвечать на вопрос, который задается в прокурорском плане. Put to me in the fashion in which a prosecutor does. In due course, sir, you will have your reply. You're in a court of world opinion right now, and you can answer yes or no. You have denied that they exist. I want to know if you, if this, if I've understood you correctly. Uh, I should like to say, sir, sir, would you please continue your statement? You will have your answer in due course. Stevenson, would you continue your statement, please? You will receive the answer in the due course. Do not worry. I'm prepared to wait for my answer until hell freezes over, if that's your decision. Now, I found that to be one of the most powerful parts of the film because, firstly, it's about, as I say, language. It's directly about language, which is what the whole Cuban crisis was all about. This seems to be the, the fruition of it, of trying to work towards language and dialogue and speaking directly to the enemy. So it's a big, angry, righteous flourish of language from Adlai Stevenson. But it also works because we don't have archive footage. In earlier parts of the film, we see clips from the 60s of, for example, protesters outside the White House. And of course, because it's archive footage, it's, it has that faded 
pastel look of the 60s. And then, of course, we merge back from that into the stark colour of the film, and it's jarring. It's very obvious that these archive clips have been shoved in, and to me, they don't, they just don't meld together. The contrast between the sharp film and the faded archive footage is too real, it's too sharp. But when we see Adlai Stevenson in the UN, we see him in crinkly black and white, because we're seeing him through Kevin Costner's eyes. We're seeing him as he watches him through his old black and white TV screen. So we get the the effect of old archive footage. We get the effect of we're watching it as it happened without actually resorting to old archive footage. <laughs> so there's no um, uncomfortable switch back to the film from the archive footage. It's all, it all merges nicely. And as we move to the final stage of the film, we move from unspoken language, hinted language, delicate language, and then the confrontational language of the UN scene. We move beyond that to the final stage, to actual words, actual conversation between an American man and a Soviet man. Robert Kennedy has been sent to meet in secret with the Soviet counterpart, and they are in a room alone together. So there is no need to worry about what the advisors might think, what the public might think. No one is there, no one is listening, the room isn't bugged, we assume. The two guys can sit down and speak freely, without having to worry about perception or saying the wrong thing. They can just speak man-to-man, to use a cliché. So here we have two sensible men, and they're speaking plainly, Honestly, free from the clouds cast over everything by war and the the macho determination of the military and the paranoia and the sneakiness of all the others who would be involved. Two men sit down. They're, They're worried. You can see in their faces that they're worried. Both of them are frightened. They don't want war. They, they make us perfectly clear to one another. When it's a one-to-one conversation like that, you can be clear. You can let your guards down. And between them, they make a deal, or at least they offer a deal. The Soviets will back off and they'll remove their missiles if the Americans promise not to go near Cuba, don't invade Cuba. And eventually, to sweeten the deal, it's agreed the Americans will move their Jupiter missiles out of Turkey. Turkey, of course, sitting there right on the border of the former Soviet Union. The Americans say, well, they were old and obsolete anyway. We were going to move them anyway. So, yeah, of course, we'll get rid of them. Just, you know, don't make that public because it will seem that we've been bullied into it. And, of course, the whole idea of this is that both sides need a way out without losing face. So Robert Kennedy says, yep, we'll move those things out of Turkey. Just, you know, don't go boasting and bragging and crowing about it. So the two men honestly and openly and plainly make a deal. And so the film shows this gradual climb towards words, language, dialogue, sweeping away all the military men and their terrible, maddening itch for war. And we sweep away the media and their cries and clamour, America must not back down, show those commies what's what. That's all swept away 
and we just get a plain, simple dialogue between two men who can then go back and speak to their superiors and we can sort it all out. And of course, the fact that we had to get to this late stage before this open and honest dialogue could occur shows that we've (laughs) made a world for ourselves and we still live in such a world where two men, two enemies, two countries can't just sit down and talk. There has to be this terrifying nuclear dance before we get to that step. And we might not have ever got to that step, of course. Now, that was a really powerful scene. We had climbed eventually to this dialogue between two men representing East-West, representing communism, capitalism, representing both sides of the nuclear terror. And yet, this is a Hollywood film, of course, so they had to throw in something soppy and sentimental. So we have... The Kevin Costner kitchen scene. Ugh. Yuck. I'd have cut that out immediately if I'd been the director. Everything's all right now, and Kevin Costner tells his wife, if the sun comes up tomorrow, then we're all okay. And yes, the sun comes up, of course it does, and Kevin Costner's in his sunny kitchen with his family and his wife, and they're all squabbling about the orange juice and the toast or whatever it is, Americans squabbled about in the 60s, squabbling and yammering and chattering. And as the kids all do that, Kevin Costner's looking out the window at the rising sun. And he's saying, the sun came up. And he starts to cry. Oh, come on. Maybe I'm just very hard-hearted, but after the very important message of how we can resolve this nuclear potential nuclear holocaust to switch suddenly from nuclear holocaust to the all-American family in their sunny kitchen crying. It was too much of a jump for me. Thankfully the film doesn't end on that. It ends with uh, Kennedy going into the Oval Office alone where he dictates a letter of condolence to the mother and father of the pilot who was shot down over Cuba. And if we end on the remembrance of the pilot's death there is a very sad premonition of of Kennedy's death. Well, the death of both Kennedys, I suppose. Because um, his Kennedy's advisors are congratulating him on a successful end to the crisis. And the actor playing um, LBJ steps forward and says, bring on those midterms, and someone shouts, four more years! And of course, Kennedy would not be given those extra years. Now, I'm sorry there was no podcast last Monday. I do these every single week, every Monday, but uh, last week I was just tired. Just tired. And uh, my husband had a week off work and was spending it mucking about in the garden with uh, Bomba, the dog, and I just went out there with him. And it was good to get away from my desk and to be outside, even if it was being outside in a cold Glasgow March. I'm also on the last stretch of writing my book. I now have a fixed deadline for its submission, which I think I needed. Without a fixed deadline, I was probably getting a bit too relaxed about the whole thing. So now I have a fixed deadline and I will, I will, I will meet it. Touch wood. And there will be an acknowledgement section in the book where I will note the names of my patrons who've supported my 
nuclear work and research. That's a reward available to patrons who are at the super hobo or the greatest hobo level. So if you want to join my Patreon, there are lots of different levels you can sign up at, lots of different nuclear rewards. So please do consider supporting me. Take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me thank my newest patrons who joined in the last week. Pat Cullen, Javen Sweval, Tracy McRobert, Lewis Burmeister, Samuel Brown and Saul Sheldon. And thanks to Dave Cardena, who has increased his pledge. Thank you, Dave. And before I go, if you follow me on social media, you will know about my horrible mushroom cloud lamp. Um, David, my husband, got me this for Christmas, but it was broken. And I was glad it was broken because the thing is horrible. It is a glowing uh, mushroom cloud. It's a light up mushroom cloud. There's no other way to describe it. It's a bedroom or bedside lamp, uh, which looks like there's a tiny nuclear explosion in the corner of your room. Uh, Amazon gave us a refund and said, oh, just keep the thing. There's no point returning it to us if it's broken. But a few weeks ago, I was in bed reading and David walked into the room all proud with a glowing mushroom cloud in his hands. He'd fixed the thing. I didn't want it when it arrived broken. and I don't want it now that it's working. <laughs> so uh, it's it's too expensive to throw away. It was £50, 50-something pounds. So I'm going to give it away to one of my patrons. So if you are a patron at any level, I'm going to put all your names in a hat. Uh, I'll do this next week to give you all a chance, any other new listeners uh, who want to get in with a chance of having this hideous mushroom cloud lamp, you can sign up to my Patreon. So next week I will put everyone's names in a hat and I will draw one out. Although a few people on Twitter have joked that is there a special level we can sign up to, which means we won't get the lamp because the thing is so monstrous and nightmarish. <laughs> so I will do a draw and I will uh, send it to the winner. Unless, of course, you don't want the thing. You can see pictures of it on my Facebook or on my social, on my Twitter. So I'll do the draw next week. So if you want to be in a ch- with a chance of winning a hideous glowing mushroom cloud lamp, get to my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. So thank you all for listening. Please do take a look at my Patreon. And remember, you can follow me on Twitter, Julie A. McDowell, or Facebook under Nuclear Britain. And I will be back next week with another episode.